Are you ready to roll? I'm ready, bro. Are you ready? I am ready. Here we go. Ronaldo Marcus Green, welcome back to the podcast, my friend. My friend, how are you? How's Staten Island, bro? Uh, I moved out of Staten Island 10 years ago. I went to Manhattan, then Astoria, and then last month moved to Bay Ridge. I'm a Brooklyn boy now. Oh my God, Bay Ridge. Yes, yes, yes. Oh my God. Didn't we play those boys from over the over the, uh, over the the bridge in, in some baseball? We did, and you know what? You actually led me to my next bullet point, because I want to give the quick background on our friendship and history again. You and I grew up together playing baseball. Your pops coached me forever. We traveled together down to <laughs> Baltimore, down to Brooklyn. We argued over the Mets and Yankees, Jita and Ordonez. Then we meet up when you're promoting your last movie, Monsters and Men, and you're drinking fine wine. You're a father. You were speaking a little Italian. And Ray, I'm going to be honest with you. You were a little bougie. And then I hear you on Mark Marin. <laughs> no, Ray, I hear you on WTF with Mark Marin. And I'll be honest. He doesn't just have random people on the show. In the back of my mind... I always knew you were going to do something with your life, just the way you were brought up and uh, energetic with life. But after the Mark Marin episode, I knew you were going to blow up. And then I hear you did this little movie, uh, King Richard or something. Bro, how the hell did that come about, man? I'm so proud of you. <laughs> Thank you, my bro. Thank you, my bro. I don't know. You know, sometimes being in the right place at the right time, uh, you know, I, I guess I did all the steps, man. I did all the steps, right? I went to film school. I made my first film monsters and men. I went straight from there to, you know, to, to the UK and I directed some episodes, uh, of a Netflix series and top boy. As soon as I finished that, I, I landed that, uh, I landed a film with Mark, Mark Wahlberg and I made that movie and coming out of the, the Wahlberg movie, you know, King Richard, you know, came across my desk, the script for King Richard written by Zach Balin, uh, incredible artist. And, uh, and I, and I read the script and was like, man, that's, that's my father, man. That's Ron, that's Ron Green. Uh, you know, and, and, and I just, I, I called my agent immediately and said, how do I, how do I, you know, pitch on this? How do I get in the room? Who do I have to talk to, to get this? Because this movie hits home in all the right places. You know, it, it, it very similar to my experience. Now, look, I'm not <laughs> the greatest tennis player of all time, but you know, I'm certainly, uh, certainly my dad was raising us to be the greatest baseball players of all time. And, and we, you know, our fallback plan was education. And, and, and I, you know, you know, my father intimately well, you knew my father, um, you knew that, 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 that baseball was just one part of what he was trying to instill in us, right? It was education. He was trying to make us good human beings and, and well-rounded individuals. And I think, you know, school was something that if baseball didn't work out, then, that we were going to be able to support ourselves. And, 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 and we have, my brother and I, Rashad, have found a way to support ourselves through filmmaking. Um, so fast forward, you know, King Richard is just the culmination of being in the right place at the right time having an, enough experience to have gotten in the room and then being able to, you know, obviously share my story and my upbringing, the athletic background, you know, the eccentric father who, who was coaching us to, you know, and, and, and wearing those short shorts that will wore in the film <laughs> and, and just be able to, to, to have that freedom of expression. And, and, and look, you know, I was fortunate enough to land, you know, land uh, a meeting with the producers and the family and then land a meeting with the studio and then land a meeting with Will. And then, you know, look, once Will and I were in the room, I think he saw exactly what you see in me. Right. It's just a, a you know, a, <laughs> a good guy who's passionate about what he does and and seems to have 
seems to know what he's talking about, <laughs> you know, you know, and I think that's, that's, that was, that's what happened, man. Will is, Will is just a regular dude from Philly who grew up in the hood and, and has now become a, a mega global superstar, but he's just a, he's just a regular guy with a heartbeat like us and, and, and wants to be great at what, it, at what he does. And, and I think he could see the passion in me and the young hungry filmmaker that, that had a vision to how to tell this story in terms of tone and in, ter- in terms of scale in terms of what I wanted to achieve and I think will will saw that in me and, and and gave me an opportunity gave me a chance now let's rewind a little bit because I actually just watched entourage for the first time in my life is this is it similar to where your agent and you are just getting scripts over and over because you'll probably get a lot of crappy scripts but then you get this this is like when the Super Bowl hey here's your free ticket to the Super Bowl when you see this script it's the Williams sisters, and they're involved in it. It's not just one of those things, hey, we're going to make a video, um, a movie about them. They're not involved. You get this script with this Serena, Serena and Venus Williams. You get it. How does that happen? You get the script. Right away, you knew you wanted it, obviously, because it resonated with you, with your dad. And Ray, about that, my mom watched it, and she called me up because she knew you were involved in it. She knew you directed it, and she goes, Mike, that's that's Coach Green. I'm like, I, isn't it, Ma? Like, it was so funny <laughs> that you mentioned it. But now, Ray, when you when you get this thing, you call your agent. How does that happen then afterwards? Because I'm gonna speak like an amateur film watcher. So what happens next? You get this film, you get the script, and watch. Yeah. So obviously, this was my third feature film. So in the way the industry works, you know, the, depending on the tier of director that you are, tier of actor that you are, you're getting, you know, you're getting. Uh, you're on certain lists, right? So consider me like I made, you know, I had a good rookie season. Let's put it that way, right? You know, okay. I made I made Monsters and Men and it won, it won a jury prize at Sundance. So that's, I don't know, the equivalent of winning like, I don't know, the Cy Young Award for pitching. Okay. You know what I mean? Like they don't give out too many jury prizes at arguably the number one festival in the world. So for you to win that, you're now you're now considered someone to look out for. And so your name is now on these lists that Hollywood put out. And the lists include, right, there's Spike Lee's of the world and the Ridley Scott's of the world and and the James Cameron's and the Catherine Bigelow's. And they're all on these major lists, right? Those are the tier one directors, right? They're big budget, big movies, been around a long time. But they also cost a certain amount of money, right? So like every team has a salary cap, right? <laughs> like, <Okay>. like <laughs> you know, at the end of the day, a team has a salary cap and like Will is a big portion of that salary cap. So when you get Will, you know, that team had to pay big money to get Will, <laughs> you know? So if they go after a James Cameron, they got to also pay big money to get James Cameron, you know? <laughs> and, and I'm just using him as an example, but... But they may have been capped out, right? It's 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 the kind of movie that's not it's not Game of Thrones or you know it's 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 not Gladiator, right? It it's not, it, you know it it doesn't have it's not a two hundred million dollar budget where it requires that kind of filmmaking. It, it, it's a character movie. It requires uh you know someone that understands how to make those kinds of movies at a certain level. And so I'm sure that they had the the big directors, the mid-level directors, and then the new directors that, you know, are on track, right? The young mm-hmm. guys that haven't been signed to these huge contracts yet. <laughs> uh, and and I fit in that pocket. And I'm sure amongst, you know, a few names is, is, is how it works, right? So I was on the 
affordable list let's put it that way right that doesn't mean that it's any less of a of a quality product it just means that i'm not established in the way that spike lee is established i'm not established in the way that someone that scorsese who's been doing it for 30 years is established right i'm still making a name for myself in the league and so i was able to get on the radar as like Who's this kid coming up? Who's Dwight Gooden? Yes, eighty-six. You know, like who's this guy? Who's this guy who's throwing ninety-five miles an hour and hasn't been signed to a team yet? Like we got to get that kid, and that's that's kind of how they how they see you. I'm an athlete. I'm playing at a high level, and I'm not yet signed to that big team at the time that King Richard had come out, and so I was still. I was still a get in that way. And so I think I was able to get in the room because I was certainly, you know, um, I was certainly on the, on the list of folks that they were looking at based on salary cap. And, uh, and then I was able to win the job, you know, based on the contemporaries. I don't know who's going for it and it doesn't matter at this, at this point, it's water under the bridge, but, but certainly, you know, look, I think my personal story, having you having met my father, understanding who that man was, I think you could see a lot of him and me in in the movie. When you're reading this script, you're falling in love with it. As you're reading it, in your mind, are you putting together pieces? Okay, I want that actress, that actor. I don't want to dream too big with this one. Is that how you're putting it together? Like you're a GM putting a team together or not yet? Yes. So, you know, look, of course, I'm still being introduced to certain actors, right? Like I had seen John Bernthal, you know, in a number of roles, and so I knew who he was, but I didn't necessarily see him as Rick Macy when I first read the script. But then when I met him and I thought, you know, what, I think this guy can do it, you know, and he's really interesting and he, I, and I can go against type. Right. He's the Punisher. But here's a guy who's, you know, who's done Leah Coca in Wolf of Wall Street. He's been. You know, he was in Ford versus Ferrari and I and I really loved his range. And I thought, you know what, he's an interesting choice. He's not he's not plain vanilla. He's something he's someone that people recognize, but would be excited to see in another character. And so when I you know, it's it's not it doesn't always happen where you just see the person. Sometimes you do and sometimes you don't. But but in this case, it was, you know, it was certainly building a team around Will. Will was already cast before I came on. And he's also a producer who was, you know, in part responsible for giving me the job. So then it was my job to surround my Tom Brady or LeBron with a championship team. That's my job. Right. I think. And there's many different methods to doing that, right? You can go the money ball route, which is pure <laughs> statistics. And these people are worth X. And, 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 and that's how a lot of Hollywood movies are made, right? You know, it literally is math. And there's a certain value that certain actors bring to a movie. And that's how movies are built. In this case, because Will is the star I, I had a lot of flexibility in who I can surround him with. And so I could take, a, you know, not such a, a, you know, a paint by numbers approach and really cast folks that I thought would be great 
for the role. And so we went the traditional casting method. I had two casting directors, one Rich Delia, one A.V. Kaufman. You could look at their credits. They've done, uh, you know, huge movies, amazing casting directors. And we were able to flush out the rest of the cast. And that included finding all the girls, you know, uh, Sanaya Sidney, Demi Singleton, Layla Crawford, Michaela Bartholomew, Daniel Lawson. And then, of course, Tony Goldwyn, uh, John Bernthal, and last but not least, Anjanou Ellis. And she, you know, in my opinion, is the, you know, Scotty Pippen to <laughs> Michael Jordan in the movie. We got to be honest with each other now. I'm going to take us back to the dugout in Mid-Island, <clears throat> growing up as 13-year-olds, wearing the green jerseys. If we would have met a Mets minor league player, we would have geeked out. Because I do this silly pod- <laughs> because I do this silly podcast, I get to meet a ton of celebrities and athletes and authors. There are a few people in the upper echelon, and Will Smith's one of them. So no matter what, you're still the dude from Port Richmond, Ray. Tell me about the first time you're meeting him. Like, and the, the truth, I know we have to play it cool. Like when Omar from The Wire, when Michael K. Williams came on my show ten times, every time he came in, everyone there would geek out. But I had to play it cool. I'm like, hey, what's up, bud? Meanwhile, inside, I'm like, holy shit, I'm sitting across from Omar. We're just gonna drink beer and do a show. Tell me the first time you meet Will, but it's not a friendship. You have to sell yourself. So how'd that happen? So I'll be honest with you. I think had it been the first celebrity I met, I might've, you know, <laughs> felt a little differently. I had the experience of working with Mark Wahlberg on mm-hmm. a film and I got to know a celebrity. I got to, you know, ride on a private private plane. I got to see entourage in real life. <laughs> you know, I got to meet someone who had become a global movie star who was just kind of like you and me in a lot of ways mm-hmm. you know who loves sports and was a dad like just a just a guy and so i i think i had it you know before meeting mark it, it might have felt differently but because i had the experience of working with mark and then meeting some of mark's friends who are also mega stars you know I had the experience of meeting other celebrities before meeting Will. That doesn't take anything like away from that experience. It certainly still was a little nerve wracking because he's Will Smith. But I think a a little bit of the edge was taken off because I, my hunch was right. Will is just a guy. He's just a guy who wants to be great. And, and he's not looking for people to fan out on him. He's Mm -hmm. looking for people that can work with him. And yeah, don't get me wrong. I think all of my nerves that I had, they, I think I was so nervous that they went away, but I was exhausted by the time (laughs) I met him. I like cycled through all those nerves. And then I was just like, cool, I could just meet this guy now. So, So either I got to the point of just like, it was so I was so nervous that it it made it impossible to be nervous anymore. (laughs) Did you ever see the, the movie, uh, free solo the documentary i have yes 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 it's kind of what it felt like it felt like i know it's scary to everyone else right everyone else looking at this guy on the side of the mountains with no ropes it it looks like death right you just fall but to him you're in that space and and it's kind of where you feel the most comfortable and it's because you've sort of trained to be there and it's a weird analogy because that's what it yes if i if i think about the fall it's really far <laughs> it's a very tragic death you know so i i think i think that's what it felt like was 
that I had been training my whole life in some way to get in that room. And then I was just dancing, man. I was just dancing and it felt like I, it felt, it felt cool. It felt like I was right where I needed to be right where I should be. Um, everything that I, I had worked for getting to that place felt like, man, this was every lesson my dad was trying to teach me as a young man you know, that you are worth it, that you do deserve to be here, that nothing was handed to you, that you actually did the work to get in the room, um, that it's no, it's not an accident. Will saw Monsters and Men. He saw what you did with those actors and Anthony Ramos and Kelvin Harrison Jr. and John David Washington and Shante Adams and Nicole Bahari. And it's not an accident that all of them have gone on to be superstars in their own right. Anthony Ramos is now Transformers. Yeah. <laughs> John David Washington is Tenant. Uh, you know, Kelvin Harrison Jr. is Cyrano. You know, he's like they're at, he's now Basquiat. Like they're at the top of their craft. You know, and 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 it's not an accident. And so I think Will saw that he saw that I wasn't just making it up. <laughs> you know that this kid actually can hit can hit the corners with the fastball that's 95 <laughs> you know like all right he's not just throwing hard but he's pitching he's pitching there's a difference between a hard thrower a hurler and a pitcher and i think i've, I've i'm now learning i'm learning to pitch i'm learning to pitch and not just throw hard and i think when i first started making movies i was just throwing hard man i was just throwing hard and i was making noise by being able to throw the ball hard and now I'm now spotting the fastball and learning how to control the changeup and learning how to spot the curveball. And now if I can develop a third or fourth pitch, it will make me a very dynamite pitcher, you know, and that's the difference between middle relief, closer, you know, and being a starting pitcher. And ultimately I want to be a starting pitcher on a franchise team. And that's how I view myself and whatever work I need to get there is what I'm working on developing are those skills to make me a, a truly formative, formidable pitcher in the league. So yeah, to use another Met, you know, DeGrom, I'm trying to go after, you know, I'm trying to go after all those, you know, all those records, my friend. <laughs> Honing your skill to be the ace as a director, are you worrying about everything? The word, the clothing is that, are you involved in the entire process of this and just, how do you go to sleep at night worrying about every single little thing? Yes, but look at, at this. You know, look you 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 work for an institution. You work at, at a place where you count on a lot of people to do their jobs, right? I'm not a costume designer, right? But I I have good taste and I know what a good costume is and I know what looks fake. So my job is not to necessarily design the costumes, right? That's the other person's job. But it's my job to see how those costumes work for the storytelling of the movie, right? How do they work for our storytelling? So, you know, Will could have been in jeans the whole movie. He could have been, you know, there were many different outfits to choose from. And together, working with the costume designer was refining what was going to define our characters in the movie. So I, you know, you know, they deserve all the credit for the conceit of those things. Right. And sometimes it's, it works both ways. I have an idea. I tell it to them. They deliver. Sometimes they have an idea. They show it to me. 
and I sign off. So I think it's a two way street. You know, sometimes, you know, if I'm a quarterback, I audible at the line. Sometimes it's a, it's a great play design, you know, and, and, and I think it's, it's both of those things. It's being able to j- adjust in real time and have a vision for what it is that you're looking for. So that goes across to many different departments, right? So for me, in the same way that I cast the movie was the same way that I cast my crew. When I crew, I wanted, I hand selected who I thought were going to assemble what I considered the best that I could make this movie, right? Robert Ellswit, who was the cinematography of the film, I was a fan of his work. He's a great classic American filmmaker, arguably one of the best to ever do it. He made, he won an Oscar for There Will Be Blood. He made Magnolia. He made, you know, Boogie Nights, The Town. I mean, the list goes on and on. Punch Drunk Love. Like, this guy is a master filmmaker in his own right. Pamela Martin cut The Fighter and Little Miss Sunshine. These were people that I knew their work. I knew their body of work. And I reached out to them because I thought that they could add value to this film. So they bring a perspective, right? When you've had 25 films under your belt and you've done this, they're bringing their very best. You know, I'm learning from them as much as they're learning from me. And when Thomas, who did the production design, mm-hmm. had designed Malcolm X, had come up with, I don't know, maybe did five movies with Spike Lee. I mean, an incredible production designer. But the reason I chose him was that he was a he had come through that era of filmmaking. He had done a tremendous amount of period pieces. I needed someone with the knowledge and expertise of that period of time. It's like hiring a historian. If you don't get the history right and you don't understand what a mid-century home looks like, you're, you're, the authenticity of that storytelling is off. And people can feel you're in a modern home that doesn't feel right. Something doesn't feel right about what you've constructed. And so the, the folks that I surrounded, you know, the team that, you know, myself with had more experience than me, quite frankly, they've been around the game a long time. And to me, that was, it, it, it added value because I was bringing, I don't know, consider myself, you know, McVeigh, you know, who's now <laughs> in the Super Bowl, right? I'm young to do what I'm doing, right? There are a few young filmmakers but to be at this level you know typically the guys are a little older you know the the guys and gals are a little older than 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 me at this time right they have more years under their belt and i'm younger in the league to be in this position and so what i did not want to do was squandle this opportunity right i have the chance to take will smith all the way to what i consider a championship right and that we'll know tomorrow. Tomorrow's the Oscars, man. So we'll know very well whether we got there or not. But but I'm going to do everything in my power to get the very, very best performance out of out of my lead actor. And that takes a commitment from the actor himself. But it also takes a great team. It takes great energy. It, it takes great support from the trainers to the coaches to everybody behind the scenes that you that don't get their flowers. It takes those people in order to make the Michael Jordans of the world. And Will knows that very well. He knows that his hair and makeup team and his, you know, he knows that his team is, are the people that are helping him get to where he is. His quarterback coach, who's Aaron Spizer, has been with him for 25 years. These are the people that Will surrounds himself with. And clearly he saw something and coming to Ray Green 
in terms of building a championship team around him. Great players like to be coached. We, we don't know that. We think this is the greatest player. Jordan doesn't need a coach. Great players need to be coached. They say great actors need to be directed. Directing Will, who's a great, you're going to be a great. Is it weird the first time you're like, uh, hey, Mr. Smith, I'm going to need you to do that line a little differently. Did you have any um, hesitancies doing anything like that? Yeah, well, I think it's style, right? Style, uh, you know, style makes games. You know what I mean? And, and I think, you know, if you think about, you know, uh, you know, if I think of as, let's say, hey, you still the mic? I'm there. Yeah. If I think about myself as a quarterback, right? What kind of quarterback am I? Am I am I Peyton Manning who drops back to pass and hits my receipt? Like, am I that quarterback? Am I a pocket passer? Am I Lamar Jackson? Am I am I Patrick Mahomes? Mm-hmm. Right? And I think. I think it's figuring out a little bit where, what kind of quarterback I want to be, right? Am I someone that's just going to sit in the pocket and break down defenses in the way that, you know, Aaron Rodgers does it? Or am I Josh Allen? Am I a hybrid? And I think that's, that's a little bit when you're working with your players, right? And you're developing reps, right? If, 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 Will is either your star running back or your star receiver. Like it's my job to hit him in the chest or hit him in the hands every time. Right. And when you first start taking reps, you know, not all the balls are going, you know, some balls are a little, you know, 10 feet behind. You know, but a great player is going to make the plays, right? A great player makes that adjustment. So a little bit is, is, is a little trial and error, right? It's a little bit of fine tuning that relationship and, and, and inevitably, Every coach, you know, player relationship takes fine tuning. But once you guys get into a rhythm, then you're like, man, he like it's about anticipation, 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 anticipation that I don't get sacked and I get the ball into my star player's hands so that he can make a play. And that's what it feels like. Right. If I'm getting sacked, I'm not getting him the ball, which means I'm dropping the ball. It may not be my fault that I got sacked, but it's still my fault. I'm the quarterback, right? Nobody cares. They just can't. You got sacked. You got sacked. Like, you didn't get away. You didn't get your ball the star player. So you stink, Ray Green. <laughs> you know, like, at the end of the day, I got to get the ball out. If I see the defense is blitzing, I've got to dump a pass. I've got to – and that's what it feels like. But I have to get my star player the ball a, a, a certain – number of times a game for him to be successful and if i don't design plays to get him the ball i'm failing and i think will saw that i was getting him the ball but i was also getting him the ball in ways that made his start that he was still he could pass the ball will was like he was he didn't have to carry the whole movie Mm -hmm. on his own he carries enough of the movie so that he can be the greatest star that he could be, but he doesn't have to carry the whole weight. If you're the only star player and you don't have anybody to pass to, that's a lot of heavy lifting that you're expecting out of your out of your talent. Speaking, and of, I think yeah. Will certainly saw that in in me that that I was not I was not counting on him to do everything. I was I was setting up scenarios where we could run the ball, and I and we can pass. We are a dual threat here. 
No, I want to talk about heavy lifting because Venus and Serena signed on to it. They were all involved. Two questions. Did you ever, when, you know, you get the script, did you already know you wanted to give so much props and so much, you know, you recognize the mom who's never even spoken about and also the sisters. People don't know how many sisters there's were. Was that involved? Did you know that right from the beginning or did Venus and Serena say, hey, we want to involve them a little more? Was that overall your plan? Yes. So, so from the script, the, the writer had done a lot of research, you know, to, in that first, first draft that I received and the girls, the, when I say the girls, the sisters were all in the film but they were really, they weren't sort of, um, they weren't flushed out. It was really Richard's story. And when I read it, I was obviously, I, I thought he did an amazing job with the structure and, and Richard's plan. And it was funny and it was, it was charismatic. But what I thought was missing was there, this other parent in the house, right? The mom's role, which was there, but not really defined. And I and it and it just gave me an opportunity because all all it said when I read the script was like okay, what makes this movie different than every other movie was what we did not was it's what we don't know about the Williams family. If you if you went to the movie and you knew everything about them and I just gave you that, that's kind of boring. Yep. But if you go to the movies and you discover things you did not know, then that's a movie. Oh man, I didn't know the mom was involved. I didn't know the sisters were hanging signs and picking up balls. I didn't realize how how instrumental the mother and the sisters were to executing Richard's plan. And that's what makes the movie interesting, was this little unknown story about their lives. We also didn't realize what they were doing at 9, 10, 11, and 13 years old, and how these decisions shaped who they, have, who they are today. And I think, I think together with the writer, we were able to really turn up the volume in the areas of the script that that made the movie unique. And he had done all of the work to get Richard to become a very dynamic character. But I think if the if the movie's just Richard, it's it's not as powerful of a film. The movie's now the story of a family, and now it's the story of five girls who are riding in a VW van, who are picking up balls, who are hanging signs. It is a full family affair. And look, you and I know that feeling very well because we played travel baseball and we were in vans and 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 we know what it's like to pick up after each other, right? To be in a collaborative environment. And, and that energy is what I think separates this movie from a lot of other films that are like it in the sports arena, but also gives you a unique insight into who this family is and was at that time. And, and, uh, you know, again, I think it makes, uh, it makes the, the, the film far more unique and gives it a, a point of view that, uh, that certainly uh, separates it from 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 other from other films. When you have the script in your hand, it's done. Do you interview other people? Are you reading books and magazines? Are you watching old matches? Are you making any changes to the script? Or here's the script. Are you doing like? Are you delving a little further and making some changes? Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, my style in general. It's like if you. I think about myself as a. You know, um, if the writer is the. You know, sort of. The you know the. He put the plan, he put the blueprint together, right? And now I have to build it. It's my job as the architect to build it. 
but I have to make sure that that foundation is very strong, right? The materials are strong and it's my job to build and design the movie. And I have to take certain liberties for the drama of it, right? In order to make the movie work, like for instance, I'll give you a couple examples from the film that were written in a different way and were portrayed in the film differently. So the scene with Will and uh, and Sanaya Sidney on the court where they're, they come to the net and they're facing each other was not written to be an exterior scene. In the original iteration of the script, it's the same, you know, sort of similar dialogue, but it was written in a, in a bedroom where I think her character was crying with a doll. And I thought, look, at this period of time in the movie, her character is taking agency. Like if she's in the room crying, it doesn't feel as cinematic or it, it's not showing how she's desiring to play. Like, I remember when I was frustrated, I would go out and throw the ball against the wall and throw it as hard as I could and let the ball bounce back to me. So I was like, I said to myself, what if she was hitting the ball against a, a machine and taking out her frustration that way? Wow. And, and, and dad could come on the court. And so once I was, once I had that vision, then I could, I could, you know, explain that vision to the writer and then get buy-in. And so go back, let's put it in the script. I can now tell Will, of course he's going to get excited. It's a very, it's much more cinematic to do it that way than it, but that doesn't mean that the intention of the scene wasn't there and it wasn't always sort of scripted for there to be a moment. There was, and that was written, but it's my job to rewrite it visually. That's the job of the director to see it. And so that was just one, that's one example of like, you know, the final match is based on a real match that actually happened. There's real footage of that match. It's in a closed arena with like 300 people. That's far less cinematic than a 7,000 seat stadium. <laughs> you know, it's just far less cinematic. So I'm making a movie, man. I'm making Rudy. I'm making Rocky. <laughs> like, I want, like, I want, you know, like, we need that energy, man. Like, it's a little underwhelming to go to, like, I don't know, a tournament for young kids like that's not as exciting but it is exciting to know that she's in an open air arena under the lights you know when i'm thinking about myself as a baseball player the most fun the most cinematic moments i had were playing those night games now we did get eaten up by those mosquitoes <laughs> Beirut, but but i remember those lights and i remember like that feeling of the grass and the, the nuances of, of the game and the sunflower seeds and the pumpkin seeds in my back pocket, like those were the things I remember. And I wanted to make those moments in the film really sing. So I moved it to an open air arena. Now, does it make it any less true that it happened? No, the event happened and the match happened. So we're staying, we're staying authentic to the events, but we're making a movie. And and those are the things that I felt could elevate the film in, in moments. Those are just two examples. The Serena scene with Will in the in the, you know, at the at the uh, um, at the mouth of the court. I stole that essentially right from Rudy. I literally remember when Rudy skips his last practice with Sean Austin doesn't go to the last practice of the season at Notre Dame because he wasn't on the list. And then Rock Hudson is walking by and sees 
Sean Austin sitting there overlooking the stadium. And I remember telling Zach, I was like, Zach, that scene is Serena. We have to put that in the movie. It's amazing. It's one of my favorite scenes of all time. It's so perfect at that particular time of the movie. And it it works so well in our movie. And now here's Serena, who's been overlooked and overshadowed throughout the whole movie, and now is looking out at her future. And guess what? Dad notices her at the mouth of the stadium, overlooking her future. And it's cinematic. It's beautiful. It's touching. It's emotional. And that's, that's, you know, those are some of the contributions that, you know, a director can make to a script that is not a living organism yet, right? A script, a really good script can show you how much life it has, but it can't direct itself. It can't put actors, it can't create emotion in the same way. But without a great script, I can't make a great movie. So he deserves all the credit, man. Zach Balin wrote a beautiful script. He gave me the foundation to play. And that's what I did, man. I just played with the foundation I had. I painted the best portrait that I could. And what you see is what you get. I have a lot of authors on, and I always ask them, how do they know when the book is done? And the same for you. It's it's more difficult in a movie. How do you know when it's done? No more edits. Here we go. It's ready for the world to see. Uh, you know, usually finances tell you, <laughs> you know, like, you know, yeah, you, you, you have to be done on Friday because they need it for the sound mix. Look, it's never finished, right? You could always go back and tighten. And at the end of the day, right. Pencils down, pencils down and, 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 and you have to live with it. And I, and I think that fortunately for us, we were, we had gotten to a very, very good place in the edit or, uh, uh, you know, earlier on, we weren't racing to the finish line. Like, you know, I, I would put it like this. If you were, uh, we weren't going for the wild card slot. You, you know what I mean? Like, like we weren't like turning it around <laughs> in the second half. Like we were, we were up and we stayed up with this movie. And, and maybe it was the construction of the film, the performances, the screenplay was strong. The performances were strong. The editor was strong. And so we were, we, we had a very, very, very good indication of the movie pretty early in the edit and so we got to the fine-tuning stage much sooner than a lot of films get there you know you're you know and so i think we 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 utilized that momentum and and planned accordingly you know we we were in a good place uh with the film we shot really really good stuff we were very very strategic about you know the the footage that we got and and how we shot the scenes so there were only so many different ways that we could cut it. So we weren't, um, we were not lost in the edit. We were actually found. And I'd been on the other end where I was trying to find the movie in the edit. And that's never a good place to be. Release day happens. Are you checking numbers? Are you reading reviews? Are you looking at the sh- uh, streaming numbers? Do you have like a, like a, a tradition? What do you do when that happens? <laughs> uh look i mean i'm aware but i'm not uh i've learned to uh take a back seat you know my first movie i'll just give you an example you know we we premiered the movie at sundance i'm thinking man i'm riding high i'm like man i <laughs> thought i saw i thought i saw a standing ovation like you know in my mind i replayed it and i i saw people standing i saw people crying i'm thinking we hit it man we hit it and the very first review comes out and it just like 
it crushed me. Man. Oh. It was like essentially Ronaldo Marcus Green should stop making movies. It was like it was it like it felt personal. Like it wasn't even about the film. It was like me. I was like, man, oh my god. <laughs> You know, like, what happened, man? Did I do something to this journalist? Like, what's like, what, what did I do? Like, I was like, I'm a nice guy, man. Do I deserve to go down like that? You know, it, it just, it just was, it just punched me in the gut, man. And I mean, thank, thank, you know, thank the heavens, man, that, that, you know, eight hours later, uh, you know, five more reviews came out and they were all positive. But that first review, like it, it, it messed me up pretty bad, Mike. I'm not going to lie. And and I, I just knew from there, I was like, you know what? I can't, I can't be looking at this stuff. I just have to, I just have to hope that what I made, that I, that I love what I made, that I'm content with the film that I've put out there. And you know, the rest is icing on the cake. That doesn't mean, look, people, your friends will text you and someone said they saw you here, but I asked my, pu- you know, I asked the team to be taken off the brakes. The brakes are essentially these, you know, um, it's a it's like a email list of all the publications that come out all the reviews and they send them out daily so i've been asked to t- take my take my name off of those email lists i don't want to see that i don't want to look at look at it every day good or bad because i think ultimately man even the good stuff even the great stuff what is it what does it mean does it mean that you're you don't work as hard the next day because you're great it's like no i don't want to rest on any laurels look my job as a pitcher is to get better every day and to throw strikes and and to win games and myself as a filmmaker have very much the same mindset, man, is, is like, don't get me wrong. I will be tuning in tomorrow to know <laughs> if our film gets nominated for Best Picture. I know I know when the Cy Young Awards are being distributed that like I, I won't, you know, uh, I'm not going to lie to you there. Yes, I, I know the big awards and I know it is important and I know that it, it's great to be recognized for your craft and and for the for, for the film. So. Fingers crossed, man. Fingers crossed. Uh, I'm hopeful, but but I'm not. I never hold my breath for any of it. Um, I think we made a good. I think we made a great movie. Um, and I feel that in my heart. I'm very very happy with the film, and and I hope people feel that too. I actually want to talk one quickly. I texted you about it last night. I'm an obsessive reader, Ray, and I just finished reading this incredible book called We Own the City about the worst cops, crime, corruption despicable stuff what they did to Baltimore. I finished the book and I Google it because I want to learn more about these you know, pieces of garbage, how much jail time they get. And my boy <laughs> Ray Green's name's up there, popped up again. How'd you get involved in this? Tell me about that because I'm really, really excited about this. Well, you you know I made Monsters and Men, you know, loosely based off of growing up in Staten Island mm-hmm. and Eric Garner. And in my movie, I have real New York City police officers, actual real cops on the job, who helped me make that movie? I could not have made Monsters and Men without the support of the the NYPD, and and look, maybe not the entire NYPD was supporting it, but I certainly had people inside to help me. And and I grew up with friends that are cops. My dad worked for the the, the Department of Investigation, mm-hmm. had a gun, had a shield, and so I have a tremendous amount of respect and admiration for what police officers do. I never want that to get mis understood and just because i'm calling out you know corruption or things that are wrong because ultimately i am a black and latino man and as you know disproportionately we are in the prison system disproportionately we are the ones that are getting arrested and doing hard time for small things disproportionately we are the ones that are getting killed at alarming rates now, whose fault is it? I don't know. 
I don't know, but we we clearly have a problem, and it is and and I would it it is so important to me that I address these issues, not only in my community but in all communities that we all recognize that something has to get done. And it doesn't mean necessarily pointing a finger at the other side. Look at them. That's not what any of these movies or anything that I'm a part of is trying to do. Monsters and Men is all about perspective. It's all about hearing the other side and trying to understand why they, why the police might feel this way and why the community might feel this way and trying to forge a path forward. So when We Own the City came up with David Simon I was, and, and George Pelicanos, I'm a, I was a huge fan of The Wireman, and here they are coming back to Baltimore 20 years later, and my name is now on a list of directors <laughs> to direct the entire series for HBO. That's like, look, I'm not even going to use the Mets. I'm going to use the Yankees. I get to play for the Yankees. You know what I mean? Like, what? That's like growing up, you know, growing up a Yankee fan and then playing for the Yankees. I get to play for HBO? Are you nuts? Like, I'm going to do that. And this is George Pelicanos and David Simon. Oh, my God. Tackling real issues in the community in a way that doesn't feel didactic or feel like a history lesson, but still but still getting in there and talking about the institutional issues and the and and going in the governmental like really really layered storytelling and nuance like there's no better place to be there's nobody that, that does it better than them and if they feel that your boy Ray Green can help elevate their storytelling man I'm I I've done okay man I've done okay and and here we are man and that's exactly what I did I got that meeting I I pitched the kind of story and the kind of tone that I saw making the show in and they bought in and here we are our film's going to drop and our, our I call it a film cuz that was the approach right I, I think HBO is not TV they, that's how they market themselves right it's not H, it's not TV it's HBO mm-hmm. and i treated it like a 6 hour film that you love the characters that you're invested in the in each of their individual arcs and that you feel fulfilled by the end and hopefully when you watch the show you'll feel the same and that was the same kind of energy that I gave to the show. Did you read the book yet? I'm putting you on the spot. Yeah, well, I read that, and I read the other, the the, the monster. Yeah, we got. Which him. I thought we, you know, that that book was really interesting because it 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 was the victim's perspective. Yes, you know, and and I and I thought that was just interesting insight because that's not the perspective of the show. And and. You know, look, it was it was good background information for my actors. So I could say, hey, read this book, even though it's not it's not based on this book. Have an understanding of what the victims were going through, because even if you're playing that, as you use the word despicable guy, they're still humans. Nobody's born despicable. Okay, in Goodfellas, which are movies that we love. Mm -hmm. We, we, we love Joe Pesci. We love, (laughs) we love Ray Liotta and they're doing despicable things. That's the irony of those kinds of films, right? So to me, I took a very similar approach that there's a reason we glorify 
there's a reason we glorify Denzel Washington in Training Day. Mm -hmm. He won an Oscar for that movie. <laughs> he won an Oscar. He literally is like the worst human being cop alive ever. It's ever. Amazing. He's the worst. Like what? He's the he's the epitome of what not to be as a human being. And he won an Oscar for it. And and he did it because he made you fall in love with him. Somehow you still relate to Denzel. He's a badass NFer with a gun. And you forget the cop of it all. And, and you still understand where he's coming from. And I think that's what this show does so well, is it tries not to villainize the villains. It tries to humanize the villains. Because I think that's how you reach audiences. When you watch Wolf of Wall Street, there's a reason you connect to Jordan Belfair. And it's it's a really interesting concept. And I think, you know, you could go the other way and just say cops are bad. It's like, but why? Why? They're human beings. They they work within a system that has been set up in a lot of ways to protect interests. And when you have that in any arena, whether it's sports or government or police union, there are certain people that are going to be protected and others that aren't. And sometimes it comes down to economics. Sometimes it comes, it comes down to different reasons. And I think the show tries to shine a light on that because I don't know, truly, mm -hmm. I truly don't know any person that signs up to be a cop to become a bad cop. It's just not, it's not logical. Nobody's like, hey, I'm going to become a cop so that I can rob <laughs> So I can go be corrupt and like steal it, like, people. <laughs> like, no, no, you, it, it's not how it works. You become a cop because you think you're going to serve justice. And when that justice or that concept is immediately ripped from underneath you, like, oh, really? Did I actually make a dent in this shit? Excuse my French mm -hmm. for lack of a better phrase. You can become you can become desensitized to the job. You can become desensitized because you feel like your individual effort is not enough to overcome the the overall effort. It's like education. Everybody becomes a teacher because they want to give to the students. And then they realize like, man, this is Newark. This is war. Mm -hmm. All the rules go out when you're in this situation. So anyway, I say I digress and say I think the show really tries to tackle that very emotion, right? That every single person that is involved in this, yes, they're responsible for the things that they did. And they are absolutely wrong and they're serving the time for it. But us just pointing the finger at them is not going to is not going to change anything. What we need to look at are the are the practices and the institution as a whole to see if we can make adjustments to make it better. And it's not going to Rome is not built in a day. It's like the NFL. Like, yeah, you know, like, is it going to be fixed? No. 
But if enough noise is made to hold certain people accountable, change will happen. You had the greatest me, line. I, Ray, when we hung out last time. Oh, sorry. What were you going to say? No, we had, you had the greatest line. When we finished up last time's podcast, you said, Ray Green and Mike Safosnik, is it gonna? F- we're not going to fix the police problem, but if we talk about it, then we tell two other people, and then the conversation, you just want to keep yelling over people. You and I sat down. We didn't agree on everything. We sat down. We drank. We talked. And we, we both left hopefully more educated. So once you bring up conversation, that's all we need, brother. That's it. And that's it. And that's we just do our job. And, and look, I want to have fun too, man. We made a fun show. We made a fun show. It's not, it's not all life and death, right? It's not all on our shoulders to fix the problem but but myself as a filmmaker as a voice in this industry dawn right i'll be damned man if i'm not going to use this platform that i've been given this opportunity to not shine a light on things that i find to be important to say something with the art you can still have fun and say something why can't you do both and 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 that's where i find myself right now man and, and i hope to continue um, I hope that our friendship has another 50 years left in it, man. I'm not trying to go away anytime soon. Um, so I hope we get to do this and chop it up, you know, a, a lot more and a lot more frequently. You ready to finish up with five quick kick questions? I'm going to let you go. You ready? Let's do it. Coolest piece of memorabilia you own now? Mm. Well, I definitely own a 1987. Oh, signed baseball by all of the Mets. Um, it also includes my brother's signature because he signed the ball <laughs> as well. But, 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 but we still have those signatures. And it's it's most of the 1986 Mets as well who returned. So it's a pretty great memory. It was with my dad while he was alive. And uh, I don't exactly know where it is, but I know it's safe. Um, but yeah, it, it's 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 special and near and dear to me. One sporting event you wish you could have witnessed live. Nineteen eighty six Mets, baby. <laughs> really, it, 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 Game Seven would be the game. You, that's the one event you wish you could have saw live. Well, it would have been game. It would have been Game Six. So you it would have been the when the game. Was, yes, okay. Went through Mookie's legs. How about this? You ready? I know this one's going to be different. Buddy, went through Buck, Buckner's leg. Uh, Excuse me. Yeah. How about this? Coolest person in your phone. You and I hanging out at a bar in New York City. You got the Golden Globe. You got the Oscars in your hand. No one cares. Who's the coolest person in your phone that if you texted them, they would text you right back? Oh, man, I'm going to sound real bougie to say Will, right? No, you're allowed to. That's the coolest one. It's a little bougie to say Will. Look, Will, Will is pretty cool, man. <laughs> Will, Will's on top of it. Will's cool. He's accessible. I mean, Jamie Foxx is right up there. I hate you, know you I mean? so much. <laughs> Jamie Foxx is right up there. Yeah, I can't choose, man. I got some cool people. But but you know what? Mike Sebastian might be up there too, you know? You, you, and, and, uh, <laughs> and I appreciate you always being in my life, my, my brother, not just because I'm on this uh, – not, not just because I'm on your podcast. And here's the last one. You had tryouts with the Mets and Reds. Did anyone you try out with, did anyone make the show? You know what? I don't know. Did Lou Doro – did Lou Doro ever make it? I don't know. Is it, he, you tried out with him? Yeah, Lou Doro from, I think he was New Door for Tottenville. I think he was New Door for Tottenville. Uh, he uh, he tried out that year, and I think he actually, you know, because he was throwing 91. He got clocked in 91 the year when I went with the Reds. I think he, I remember they were talking to him a lot longer than they were talking to me after <laughs> after uh, after the practice. So, after the tryout, I remember they called him over, and I was like, oh, well, I guess that's how it works. 
you know, my contact information wasn't exchanged. So, um, you know, that was, that was a beautiful time though, man. I, I remember, I remember John Rocker was, uh, <clears throat> you know, he was, he was in New York at the time and he had made all those racist comments in the subway and they built a tent for him in, in, in the bullpen. And so when I went for the tryout, they had the tent and I thought I was throwing 105 because it sat, you could just hear the pop, pop, <laughs> pop. And then you look at the gun and it's like 83, <laughs> 84. <laughs> you know, so I was like, man, and I felt good, man. I was loose. You know, I was like, man, where was that 88, 89 that was, uh, that was cooking up last week? No, nah, not quite, my friend, not quite. So. I, I, I want know, I want to finish with know. this. NYU is an expensive school. You you came out there with loans up the butt. You bet on yourself. You put so much pressure on yourself, and you're winning. And that just shows so much. Like people don't take chances in life. You you taught. You tried out for baseball. You did everything in between. Delivered pizza. You did everything, and you bet on yourself. Taking out loans, knowing you were going to be successful. And that's why I'm proud. I'm not proud because you hang out Will Smith and Jamie Foxx. And I mean that. You you bet on yourself. Like, yep, give me all the loans in the world. I'll put myself in debt because I know I'm going to succeed. So that's what makes me so proud. When you're yeah, in New York you, City, bro. we really have we have to link up. We'll do Staten Island. We'll do Brooklyn. Wherever you want, I'll find out this nice Italian wine for you. And congratulations on being a, fa- <laughs> a father of two. And I just Googled you. And I saw you. Um, I see you rescheduled me to, to a podcast with Camelo Anthony. I am so proud of the person you are and the message you're sending, man. So keep up the good work. I'm excited for your shows, and we have to link up in person very soon, brother. I love you, my bro. Thank you so much. I really appreciate you taking the time. Right. I love you. I'll talk to you soon, man. All right, my bro. All Bye-bye. right. Talk soon.